How's everybody doing? It's good to be here. Good to be back. All of you were there Sunday, right? Pretty much. I know, Beth, you were at your shower, the baby shower. So I shared a, a little bit about how things went in Mexico. One of the things I didn't share was our uh, when we gave out the clothes to the colony. I forgot to share about that. It seemed like there were so many things that were happening, but um, it went really well. We had more than enough clothes, more than enough baby clothes especially. We had to leave a few suitcases there uh, with Carrie and Gary down in Vizcaino that they'll give to some of the others in the colonies. And so we're thinking ahead for next year when we go. And I know in our vehicle that we were talking, I don't know if the conversation got into the other vehicle or not. Um, but we were talking about maybe, um, I think Gabe heard one of the kids was being made fun of because they didn't have any shoes. You know, they were making fun of him saying, you don't have shoes. And all they had were some, you know, flip-flops, the other kid. But uh, we were thinking maybe we could actually give out flip-flops next time. It'd be easy to pack because they're flat. And it'd be easy to probably collect sizes. And we could actually probably get some people to help and donate those kinds of things. It was just an idea. Uh, we'll talk about those things more. But we definitely, um, I think, want to make that a regular part of our trip, going to the colony and being of help. You know, it's... Touching, it's sad, you know, to see um, these young kids. I mean, there was one girl, she was 17, she had a little baby, and she was pregnant. You know, and she's living in this uh, these conditions, and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, her future looks like what? And, um, you know, it's just difficult to see. And so any kind of help we can... Uh, give is great. We gave, I forget what it was, if it was a backpack or something to one of the kids. And man, you should have heard the gasp when they got it. Was it a backpack or what was it that we gave? It was a backpack. We gave her a backpack and she was like, it was like, you know, Christmas. And it was like, oh man, just for a backpack. So maybe backpacks, there's another idea. Um, Anyway, it was neat. And everyone who'd given clothes throughout the year uh, made a contribution, and it was great to have all that there. And the team did great. It was a good experience. It was really neat because we all were there for that, and we all got to go out to dinner, our final dinner at the last, our last meal there in Vizcaino. We had papas, these potatoes. Oh, they were amazing. These they were like baked potatoes, and then they were put carne asada on them and corn, and they were smothered in butter. I could taste, I could feel the butter going down and hardening my arteries. It was so good. It was, it was a great time. We really enjoyed the time together and got to spend a little time with each other before the ride back. So it was a great experience. Again, we're planning on going again next year, same time, uh, about, you know, in January seems to work out. And I think we're going to do the La Paz, or I'm going to go to La Paz and then Vizcaino again, if they'll invite me, um, if they'll have me back. Uh, it was a great experience there as well. And so looking forward to that. Um, we've got Haiti coming up this next month, February 12th, I think it is. And the last information I got from Gil as far as the amount of money was like $19,366 that we raised. So incredible. Uh, what a monumental thing to be able to do that. I think it's wonderful. Anyway, so that's kind of what's happened. I heard Nathan did a great job last week. He's gifted. Isn't he a, a great communicator? He's just got a lot of insight. He's really... Oh, you spoke the week. That's right. I heard you. The the great brown hope. That's right. I heard that. Uh, and then Nathan the week before. That's right. Alex did a great job too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so back, and we're going to continue in John's gospel. We're in chapter twelve. So if you open up to chapter twelve. We left with the 
Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and the Jews seeking to kill him. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 57, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And so that's how we left in chapter 11. And it's important to understand that because as Jesus is now going to be going into Jerusalem for the Passover, it's with this hovering over his head, this wanting to arrest him, wanting to kill him. And so let's read verses 1 through 3 as we start. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." And so Bethany is outside of the city, as everyone is supposed to report to the Pharisees and the chief priests, if Jesus comes, let us know, he's just outside the city. So he probably isn't making as big of a noise as if he marched into the city, which we're going to see, but he's still popular enough because this is the place where it happened. Lazarus is still living there and he's still alive. And Martha and Mary are there, and it says that Martha served, so it's probably their house, because Martha wouldn't be serving at someone else's house. And Jesus comes to this place, and we see here that this is an important thing. It took a lot of courage to come back into the situation when he had to flee because they wanted to arrest and kill him. And it's not like he forgot. It's actually escalating. But this is why he's come. He knows it. And so as he comes back, he has the awareness of what he's coming into. And it's important that we understand that because as they're plotting to kill him, he's aware of this, but he's not shrinking back. And he's doing this for a reason. And and as they're sitting there, they're serving Lazarus, it says, was among them reclining at the table with them. Remember, they would lay down as they would eat. They would be on the floor. So he'd be kind of leaning. And it just says, you know, says this because Lazarus is still alive. He eventually would die again, but we don't know when. But here he's still kicking. Okay, whatever happened, he was alive. And that just kind of can you imagine being married to Lazarus? It's like that freak you out. Like his feet are cold. Oh no, what is that? You know, it's like oh no. You know that'd be. That's where my mind goes. And so, but he's still alive. And then we have this incredible and beautiful incident where Mary takes this expensive perfume and, and she pours it on Jesus's feet, wipes his feet with her hair, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume. This is such a beautiful example of worship. This perfume was probably her wedding dowry. It's probably the most expensive thing that she owned. And instead of saving it for her wedding day, she uses it on Jesus. It's an expression of incredible love and devotion to Jesus. She doesn't anoint his head. She anoints his feet, which is what a servant or a slave would do. And so we see humility in that. She also wipes it with her hair. And to us, that's a strange thing, or it is to me, and probably to you too, because in our custom, that that isn't the case. And actually, in their time, it was an unusual thing as well. A woman didn't let her hair down like this. Usually, it was a sign of... of I don't know what the right word would be. I don't want to make less of this, but it wasn't something, it was something very intimate. And so people could read this. Remember the one Pharisee saw Jesus when he, the woman was washing his feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair. If 
he knew what manner of woman this was. Well, that's something that manner of woman, it's too personal to be done in a public place in their eyes, but she didn't care. It wasn't inappropriate because her heart was in the right place, which brings us to an understanding that there are times when even though culturally things may seem to push the boundaries, sometimes those boundaries need to be pushed so that we can make the statement that is being made. And here it was one of love, adoration, and worship that was wholehearted. She was giving her life to Jesus. And we know from other the other gospel accounts that there is an account where Martha is busy and she tells Jesus, Jesus, tell Mary to come and help me. But he says, Mary has chosen the better thing. She is at my feet. And it may be this instant where Mary is serving Jesus by worshiping him, pouring the perfume out. And as she does this, it says the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When we worship God and when we love God wholeheartedly, it can be seen by everyone. It leaves a fragrance. When we give ourselves, devote ourselves to Jesus, it affects more than just us. The fragrance permeates all those who are there to see it. And so it's important to understand that this fragrance is the lasting remnants of this act of worship. And so as Mary takes the most precious things she possesses and spends it all on Jesus, it's an example of love. She doesn't say, well, this is a lot of money. I'm going to count the cost. And we're going to see the contrast with Judas in the next few verses, but she says, all that I have, the most valuable thing that I own belongs to you, and I give it as an offering to you. And what a beautiful picture that is. I heard something John Corson shared one time that, you know, after everyone left the room, you know, and everyone goes on their way, you know, they saw and experienced visually this act of worship But the only ones who walked away and still carried the fragrance were Jesus and were Mary. And by actually acting in worship, it lingers with us more than just watching worship. And so you can see someone loving Jesus and serving the Lord, and it can leave an impression. It can leave a fragrance in your mind. But when you leave that person, the fragrance no longer stays with you. It only stays with you when you participate in it. And I think that's a beautiful picture because this fragrance remained on Jesus that Mary's worship was, and it remained on Mary as well on her hands, on her hair. As she left, she still had this fragrance, and so did Christ. And and worship does that. It affects our lives, and we carry it with us. We don't just leave it there. It permeates us. And, And it's a beautiful picture of how that takes place. Any thoughts on these few verses? Anything that stands out to you or any questions you might have on them? Yeah, she definitely... You know, she she was the first one Jesus revealed himself to appeared after the resurrection. There's a reason. Her heart was endeared towards him. You know, um, yeah, she holds this very special place. It's an incredible, beautiful picture. You know, and it's one of complete worship. And, and so it's great to see it as it comes out and just you know, shows up in this form. You know, what a beautiful example of worship. What a beautiful example of devotion. What a beautiful idea. This whole, you can just smell the fragrance, you know, whatever it smelled like, I don't know. But you just, you know, I've got this in my mind, this perfume and it just being something that's wonderful. You know, and I don't usually like perfume. Usually it's like, oh, that's strong, you know. And so, um, but I just have this sense, this is beautiful. 
and it leaves with that impression. And verse 4, there's a contrast. There, there is the worship that Mary shows. There is the devotion that Mary gives to Jesus that can't be, you can't put a price on it. It's of more value than the most precious thing you own. And in contrast here in verse 4, it says, But one of the, his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So here is a contrast. Now, a lot of powerful things here. First of all, Judas objects to this act of worship. It's, it's showing his heart. It's revealing what's going on, something that is beautiful and the imagery is just one of complete worship, but Jesus to Judas isn't what he is to Mary. See, to Mary, he's, he, you mean everything to me. To Jesus, or to Judas, Jesus means something different. And we're starting to see here that Judas had other ideas of who Jesus was supposed to be. Now, we know that Jesus knew someone was going to betray him. Back in chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus says, Have I not chosen the twelve of you, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son, Simon Iscariot, who the twelve later would betray him. So, Jesus seems to know at least that one of them is going to betray him. Do you think Jesus didn't know that Judas was stealing? It's possible. He might not have known. I know to us it seems, no, he knows everything, but really he didn't. He only knew the things that Father revealed to him. So if Judas was sneaky, he might have been able to keep it, and later on they found out about it. We, we don't know. Or did he know and still trusted him? You know, we don't see Jesus ever condemning Judas. We, we don't ever see Jesus putting Judas in a place where he couldn't turn back to him. And it's almost as if even when we were at our worst, Jesus still hopes for us to be at our best. You know, he said to love your enemies. What did he mean when he said to love your enemies? Well, he meant to love your enemies. He didn't mean tolerate them. He meant care for their well-being. We see him loving Judas, even though Judas would betray him. It's important we understand that because if you stand in a position of judgment over others, then God will stand in a position of judgment over you. With what measure you judge, it will be measured to you. Important. Jesus didn't see it fit or necessary to condemn Judas. That's telling, even though he probably knew it was him and he may have even known he was stealing, but he didn't stop him. He didn't rebuke him. It's almost like he kept trying to win him. And it's just an interesting scenario when you throw Jesus into this mix, it conjures up a whole lot of ideas of how we're to interact and deal with one another. Because we have it in our mind how you do things, and Jesus doesn't ever do things the way I would do them. And so here is Judas. He didn't care about really the perfume. His, his mind was the money. 
I, I could use that money. And, you know, we see here that really here is an incident, this worship of Jesus by Mary, and it's seen in two completely different aspects. Mary sees it as completely devoting and giving of herself, and Jesus even approves this, but Judas couldn't see that. And so the same act shows up in two different ways, depending on what's going on inside of a person. And so you can have God at work and someone sees it as a work of God and understands it and connects to it and someone else doesn't at all. Have you ever maybe heard someone speak and it's like, oh man, that was so good. And it just touches your heart. And then the other person like, I didn't get anything out of it. And you're like, what? How could you not get anything out of it? That was amazing. Well, it's because of where they were. And where they were wasn't a place where they were actually receptive. And so we see that Judas's condition prevented him from seeing what was really happening. Because of where he was and because of the things that he did, you see, because he was the thief, because he was taking money, because he wanted to see Jesus fulfill something in his own mind of what he was going to be, it prevented him from seeing the truth of what he was. And it's almost as if his life started interrupting his ability to understand. Because he kept living in this kind of deceitful and this self-serving lifestyle, the more he lived this way over the years, the more it blinded him to seeing who Jesus really was. And so now when an act of worship takes place, he thinks of how he could have used that for himself. And he discredits it. You know, if we like someone, they can do little wrong. It's like those parents when I was coaching Little League, you know, and they would say, my son should be a pitcher. And I, I would think to myself, your, your son can't throw the ball. He'll kill somebody. But in, in that mom's eyes, my son should be the pitcher. And if you dislike someone they can do nothing right. It doesn't matter what they do. You will filter it through your dislike for them. And so we see that taking place with Jesus. We can misinterpret some of the greatest moments that God is doing in our life if we are not in the right mindset. And a warped mind brings a warped view of things. And that's why it's so important to have the right life as well as the right doctrine that we talked about Sunday in First Timothy. Let your life and doctrine be together because your life will interpret what actually is there. Because we want to interpret things based on how we are living. Have you ever heard a, a person, a pastor preaching against something all the time. It's like they're always preaching against a certain sin. You can probably bet that that's a problem in their life. If they're preaching against one sin over and over and over again, it's probably because they have a struggle with that sin. And so they're trying to push that away from them, the responsibility as much as possible. It happens over and over again. You look at all these preachers who have fallen into you know, some kind of sin and they were so against these things, so verbal against these things and you find out that they've been living in them. You know, he protesteth too much. And so their life interprets the reality of what's happening. Our lives will interpret the things around us. And so if there's something in our lives that is wrong, Something in our lives, a sin, or, or something that we know shouldn't be there, but we ignore it, it will taint our view of what is right. It will. And if you don't get rid of it, 
pretty soon you'll tolerate things, you'll excuse these things, you'll be against anything that's against those things, and you'll find yourself being defensive against things that you shouldn't be defensive of. I found that in my own life. I found that, you know, the things that have bothered me or or that I've, you know, been involved with that have maybe hurt me or have made me think or try and be protective of myself, they end up being the things I, I notice my blood pressure gets, you know, a little bit, my voice gets a little louder on those things. And so if you hear me talking, all of a sudden I start getting really fired. It's probably because it's hitting somewhere with me. It's probably hitting home with me, if I can just be honest. Um, and, and so something's going on with Judas. The money, he misses the worship because he sees something else. And maybe instead of us examining and judging others, we need to take a little more time and examine ourselves and see what's happening. But what a, a shame that this moment is interrupted by Judas. And I love that Jesus tells him, leave her alone. He doesn't say, you're wrong. He says, leave her alone. He protects Mary. I think that's just beautiful. He doesn't say, no, you're wrong. What she's doing is okay. He says, leave her alone. It's like, stay away from her right now. You don't understand what's going. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, my mind immediately would go, what? Your burial? What's going on? And then he makes this statement, you will always have the poor among you. And that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 15, where it says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And so he's actually quoting the scriptures, not saying, oh, there's always going to be poor. Don't worry about it. You're always supposed to be open-handed and helping the poor. But you see, there are times when there is a moment in front of you and you should not miss that moment. There, there are things that we can do almost any time. Anytime you want, you can go out and find people who are in need and help them. But you will not always have this time. How many of us as parents know that to be the case with our kids, right? I mean, Karina and I were looking through some pictures. It's her mom's birthday this Sunday. We're having her 70th birthday. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, her um, her birthday party Sunday. Um, and we're going through these pictures of the kids and her. And we're looking back and we're thinking, oh, look how young they were. Oh, do you remember that? Look at this. Oh, my gosh. And where did it go? You see, there's some things I could still go out and do other things. But you know what? All those times and all that time, I thought, oh, it's so important to get that overtime and it's so important to do this. And you realize you start sacrificing something else. And so there are some things that you can do almost any time, but there are other things you will only be able to do in the moment. And you need to recognize those times and those moments and you need to seize those moments. They don't happen all the time. And so you have to live in an awareness of what is happening. Because there is a moment happening right here that Judas should have seen, but he was unaware of it because he was blinded. And there are things in our lives where God is working and God is doing something and we need to step into it because now is the time. And if we don't, we may never get to again. And that's frightening because I don't want to miss one of those moments. I don't want to miss one of those opportunities Well, there are those opportunities. There are those moments where you have to step into them and it might mean saying no to something else and saying yes to this. And you have to choose the more important thing. And that's what she was doing here. You'll have the poor with you. You won't always have me. This moment is special, especially now as it's coming towards the end. Any thoughts or questions on these verses? Verse 4 to 8. I, I think it depends on the situation. I mean, if it's a person you know, I think you should go to that person and try and confront them on the wrong that they're doing. You know, if it's causing harm to someone else, you should 
step in and try and intervene so it doesn't cause harm to someone else. You know, um, so it's not like you should be inactive. But then there are some things where maybe someone is speaking against you, um, and it might be the the better thing or the higher road to stop and say nothing, not try and defend yourself, even though someone might be slandering you, um, to not engage in their foolishness. So it really depends on the thing that's taking place. You know, um, I, yeah, I think in you know a lot of cases with stealing, you should say something. You know, you're taking something from someone else, so you should. Gil, can you turn the air on? Is anyone else warm besides me? And, but that's a good point, because if they did know Judas was stealing, should they have said something? And if they did, what would they say? You know, hey, man, knock it off, but you can stay with us, or you can't be in charge of the money any longer. Or, or you know, the money wasn't as important as Judas's heart to Jesus. And so, what would you do to your hand? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, just noticed. You got a, something going on. <laughs> no, that's a good question. You know, they might have found this out after the fact. They might have found out, hey, and it might have raised, you know, sometimes like you don't think, oh, they'd never do anything wrong. They'd never do anything wrong. And then when they do something wrong, you say, oh, your eyes are open to a lot that they did wrong. And so it could be that, you know, Judas was one of us. And then it's like he, he betrayed Jesus. Hey, he was in charge of the money. Hey, we should have this much money, but we don't. They might have recognized, you know, at some time. So we don't know when they found out he was a thief, which is, again, interesting. Did Jesus know and he didn't say anything or did he not know? Because it's possible he didn't know. Remember the woman touched him? Who touched me? He didn't know. He limited himself. As a man, he was limited. So it doesn't mean he knowed, er he knowed everything. He knew everything. It didn't mean he knew everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the end he knew. When did he know? Did he know at the beginning? We don't know. I mean, he may have known. Again, in chapter 6, it says that he knew one, and then they cite Judas because they're looking back, seeing it. Well, again, Jesus never stopped reaching out to Judas. Jesus didn't stop reaching out to the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't stop loving. We shouldn't stop loving. If we stop loving, we are very unlike Jesus. And, you know, it's hard for us because, and it doesn't mean you can't put up boundaries or shouldn't put up boundaries, but you should always hope for someone's best. No, I wouldn't ignore it. Again, I'd put up boundaries to stop that, but I would still want what's best for that person. You know, I still would hope. What's that? Well, I would want them to change. I would want them to have a, uh, I would want them to make the changes that would lead them to a better life. You know, this happens a lot in relationships when you have someone who's betrayed, a husband and a wife, and one of them is unfaithful, you know, and they hurt you in, in the deepest way possible. You know, the tendency is to want to hurt back because I've been hurt. I, I want to hurt as well. But what God wants to do is allow you to be whole and then want them to be whole as well. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean that you trust. Forgiveness and trusting someone are two different things. And that's why a lot of times when you are counseling someone who there's one of the couples has been unfaithful and he says, well, they still don't trust me or there's still insecurity. Well, of course there is. That's the momentum of your actions. Well, I thought they forget. They did forgive you. They're still with you. But just because they forgave you doesn't mean that they automatically trust you. They're two different things. And so those are things that need to be understood. I can forgive someone. I want you to be better. I want to see you do better. But I'm still having problems with trust because the momentum of your actions is still moving us. Why did Paul have to take this little hiatus after his conversion before he came out and started preaching? I don't think it was just for Paul's sake. I think it was for the people who Paul hurt. Paul was responsible for a lot of families being devastated. And all of a sudden he comes back, ta-da, here I am, I'm a good guy now. 
I think that was a little too much for a lot of people. That momentum of all the things he did wrong had to slow down, and then he can come out and say, okay, there's been a change, and he still acknowledged Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. You know, And so we kind of lump everything into one big basket. Forgiveness means everything's hunky-dory. No, it doesn't. Forgiveness means I, I don't want evil to come upon you. I still want you to do what's well, but it doesn't mean I'm not trusting or I trust you for everything. It doesn't mean that I still don't have issues with other areas. And that's not uncommon. And you can forgive someone and still not trust them. That's perfectly fine in my book. I don't think it's the same thing. Again, it's a different way of thinking sometimes than what we're used to. So Jesus defends her, leave her alone. Verse 9, we move on. It says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. This is a circus show, right? The dead guy, he's alive, you know, go touch him, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, the chief priests, these are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the ones who said that there were no res- there was no resurrection. And so they had a lot of problems. If Lazarus is alive again, that means we're wrong. And if people start following Jesus, that means we're having problems because the Sadducees were also the ones who went before Rome on behalf of Israel. And they got a lot of benefits for this. They were kind of like our politicians today. It's like, okay, well, you know, healthcare is changing. Not for Congress, it's not, right? You know, it's like, no, we're still going to get our benefits. You know, oh, yeah, we're in a recession. Not for our congressmen, not for our senators. They still get raises. They're in that position where they have authority and they can write their own rules, in a sense, with Rome. And so as long as things are good, I can keep my job. But if a lot of people start following Jesus, Rome's going to step in and say, you guys are out, we're taking it from here. They lose their position, they lose their authority, they lose their income, their position. They have a lot to lose if everyone keeps following after Jesus. That's why they're so driven. We got to stop him. We've got to kill him. Because if we don't stop him, we're going to lose everything. He's talking about resurrection. He's risen, you know, Lazarus from the dead. People are following him. He's making us look really obsolete and ineffective. Our purpose is disappearing. Maybe that's prophetic of government as well. Anyway, and so as we see those things happening, we see them wanting to stop it. And again, now people, hey, Jesus is back at Lazarus. The one who is, yeah, I hear he's alive still. Yeah, he's eating. Oh, let's go see. I mean, come on, wouldn't you want to go see? You know, it's funny because you have churches that will put on, I mean, they still happens in the Pentecostal circuit where they'll put on healing services. Why? Because if we can do something spectacular, we can get people to come. You know, so we're going to have a healing service. Oh boy, I want to see someone get healed. And so you'll fill the place up and we'll make it sensational and we'll have the music going on because we want to get people amped because we're going to make something happen. Sensational. Well, people see, oh, Lazarus is alive. We want to go see something happen. But it doesn't change them. You see, the spectacular doesn't mean that you're changed. You can see miracles. You can experience the miraculous, but unless your conduct changes, it has no lasting effect. And this happens to countless 
numbers of people who experience wonderful things that God does, miraculous things. God answers prayer. God brings healing. And you would think, they can't walk away from God. Look what happened. It doesn't bring about change. Choice brings about change. Yes, Lori. <laughs> yeah, same problem. You know, I, I think when you see someone wanting you to change, but you see the same problem in them, I think two things need to come to mind. First, you still need to ask, do I need to change? You know, because God can speak through people even in their bad conditions to us. You know, there were prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord who weren't good prophets, but they spoke for the Lord and they spoke truth. And so you always have to be receptive to what is true and what is beneficial to you. And then at the same time, you know, maybe if, you know, if someone says, hey, you know, you've got a drinking problem, okay? You're, you're getting drunk and I see it happening over and over again. Um, and then you're saying, well, you drink a lot too, but you're ringing true. You know what? I need to be careful. I need to make sure that I don't excess in drinking. Maybe the thing to do is, why don't we work on this together? Why don't we kind of be accountable to each other? Let's, if you see me, you know, getting overboard, let me know. And if I see you, I'll let you know. And let's, let's work to have character and be people who are reputable you know and so maybe a situation like that can take place you know none of us are faultless you know and if someone comes if i see someone doing something if i see you know a husband and he's you know flirting with this girl and i know what's wrong and i go up to him i said hey you need to you know guard your marriage and your relationship it seems like this relationship is going too far. And he looks at me and goes, man, you and your kids, what's wrong with you? You were yelling at your kid the other day. It's like, well, yeah, I was, you know. But it doesn't mean that it's not true what was going on. So you could always find something that's wrong with somebody, but it doesn't mean that it's not telling you something that you still need to hear. So if he wasn't doing those things, would you have listened to him? Yeah? Okay. That's the question. Well, it definitely shows us that, you know, our voice has credibility when we live the life. And that's why it's important, you know, so that our voice rings true to what we're saying. You know, and that's an important thing for us to remember. So if I'm going to talk to someone, it's good to have a life that can stand up to those kinds of critiques. At the same time, a lot of times we need to be willing to listen and hear whether it's true or not. You know, and then if it is, okay, it rings true, rings true for you too. Well, and I think the biggest thing is, why are you telling me? You know, are you telling me to be better than me? If that comes across, no one does well. No one does well when someone is saying, you're wrong and I'm right. You know, we don't deal with that well. Your religion is wrong, my religion is right. You know, if someone came up to me and said that, I wouldn't be apt to listen very much to what they had to say because you've just made me upset. You've just, you know, put down what it is that's important to me. And so when we have confrontation, how we go about it is very important. You know, again, we talked about sun Sunday, thinking of others as more important than ourselves. If, if I went to someone and say I was a situation similar, you know, say, I'm going to someone and I've got a drinking problem, but I see they have a drinking problem. And I went to them and I said, you know what? I know I'm not a person to be able to talk to this because I've got this problem too. But I really see it affecting you and I really think you would benefit if you stopped it. Wouldn't that come across different than you need to stop it? You know what I'm saying? It's like I, I'm now lifting you up as, you know, you can do this, and I know I'm not in a position to be able to condemn you or tell you, but I really see, you know, you could benefit from not doing this. You'd be more receptive if someone comes in humility and puts you on a pedestal, so to speak, and lifts you up above themselves and, and trying to lift you higher, you're going to be more receptive. 
how we communicate is as important as what we communicate. And the Christian community has been terrible on how we communicate. We've been the most judgmental and condemning group of people around. And we say, well, we're right. It's like, yeah, you're right, but you're not reaching anybody. And if we don't change how we do things, the voice gets lost because it's the same thing. You come in condemning, you know, and that's where we have to be aware of how we do things is as important as what we're doing. Because if we don't do it with the right attitude, with the mind of Christ, then we'll be pharisaical. We'll be like the Pharisees. I know it's right. You don't. I'm right. You're wrong. And we'll condemn people and they won't receive it. And so how we do it is very important. Yeah, I mean, I think being defensive closes opportunity for instruction. You know, once we become defensive, the whole idea is defense puts a wall up, and it's hard to hear what's true when we're putting walls up, defending, you know, our position. And that's, again, why how we do it is important, you know. The important thing, and this happens to me a lot of times, someone might come up to me, my wife will come up to me and say, you know, you were really insensitive to so-and-so. You know, they came up to you and you really should have been more empathetic towards them. And if I'm defensive in how I hear it, I'll stop and I'll say, well, you know, I was just, you know, because of this, you don't know all the situation and this, and I'll defend myself. And then time will go by and I'll be laying in bed at three in the morning sitting there staring at the ceiling going, she's right. I should have, I could have been more empathetic. You know, that time will seep in where it's like, yeah, that was true. What she said rings true. And so then in the morning, I have to tell her, you were right. I was wrong, you know. But the, the important thing is, can you hear the truth and allow it to change you? And then how do we communicate those things? And again, here in this instance with G- Jesus and Judas, we don't have a lot of dialogue interaction, but what we do see is that he never condemns him. We never see Jesus putting Judas down, you know, and, and I think that's telling. Any other thoughts? I love love the questions. This is what it's about, okay? It's not just about going through this. What's that? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we did. Um, let's see. Let's stop here before we go into Jesus coming into Jerusalem, because we'll finish the chapter. Um, there's some thoughts on his coming into the triumphant entry. You know, why is it a triumphant entry if he's going to be crucified? One question. Um and what made it triumphant? And what, why were these people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? What, what is the significance of them quoting Psalms for this account? And what is it about this event that stands out? So let's think about those things for next week, okay? Any other thoughts or questions on what we read? And I think the significance of the cost and Judas are there intentional. I think John is trying to, to show us this contrast to show that money meant nothing to her. It was all about giving to Jesus, and nothing was as valuable as him. And Judas is, oh no, money was more important than the worship. you know. And I think that is there on purpose so that we can see, you know, how important it is. You know, I I know this guy who I had talked to one time had a a drug problem, and he was talking about, you know, he spent all this money on this, these drugs that he got, and then he blew it all, and he's still in the same condition. And he was talking to me, and he was like, you know, man, I I think of all the money I've wasted, you know, buying this drugs that I, I... I could have used for better purposes. And I just had it in my mind, you know what? 
when your relationship with God is more important than the money, I think you'll be on the right track. In other words, it's not about the money. There's something else that's more important that you're missing. And so don't worry about the money that you've wasted. Worry about the relationship with God that you've neglected. Because when that means more than the money, then you're on the right track. You know, and so that's kind of the frame of mind because we want to, oh, no, it's this, it's this, it's this. And John is saying it's all about this worship of Jesus. If that becomes paramount, then it will change how the money is looked at. You won't think of money the same when you think of worship in this way. The costly ointment, it wasn't enough. If I had more, I would have given it but it's what I could give as opposed to, no, it's the money. Well, this is all I can do and and that mentality. And so, but you have to be ready when it happens. You know, am I, do I have that heart that can be generous when the opportunity comes or is my heart greedy ahead of time? And then when the opportunity comes, I can't give that. Why? Because I got to get my coffee, you know, whatever. And so, Alrighty, let's pray. Lord, as we read, we are inspired, we are mindful of places that we need to be aware of in our own hearts and lives. Lord, we see ourselves in these people in some degree or another. Lord, there are times when we do worship like Mary. There are times when we do act like Judas, where we don't worship because we are consuming for ourselves and maybe not to the same degree, but to some degree. And so, Lord, as these descriptions are being read and and understood, May we take the things we see and apply them to our own lives and allow them to do a work in our own hearts. May we judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. May we recognize ourselves in this story and see what that reveals and what needs to change. And Lord, may we have this abandoned in worship that Mary had. May we have this idea that to give to you is the greatest thing. May we have in our hearts that worship for you and humility before you is something that is, Father, satisfying in itself. May we come to a place where We don't just believe that, but we experience it. And Lord, we would like to be a lot more like Mary, a lot less like Judas. And may we not come into this danger and just put Judas in this category where nothing that he has done will ever apply to us. May we use this warning in our own lives, in our own hearts, so that we don't fall prey to these things as well. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Bless everyone here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.